Welcome everybody for a new week of the Envi Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. Uh, and this week we have Rebecca Giggs as our guest. Uh, she's an award-winning author, written many, many essays. And today we're going to talk about her new book, Fathoms, The World in the Whale. So I will just give the floor to you, Rebecca. It is such a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you today. So I'm just gonna put myself on gallery view so that I can see, or perhaps, no, let's do it that way. Um, okay, <laughs> um, so I'm an Australian author. Um, my name is Rebecca Giggs. I am not in Australia at the moment. You find me in London. Um, the reason for that is simply that the international travel caps have prevented me from returning as many Australians who are overseas at the moment. But London's hardly the worst place in the world to be stranded. It's getting darker here in the afternoons now, and we're having what's called a mast year, um, which is when the oak trees drop a super abundance of acorns in the parks and in the gardens. And they do this deliberately. It happens once every seven years with the idea that they create a, a glut of nuts, um, which means that squirrels can't possibly eat them all. And so, you know, perpetuates the oak trees, those acorns that are left over, eventually germinate. But what that means is that there's these huge, fat, roly-poly squirrels getting around um, in the gardens. And uh, each night I've been going up to the top of our block of flats and standing on the the rooftop there and just watching these uh these these bumbling squirrels getting around in the treetops um so i'm quite enjoying it here but i'm hoping to be back in australia um early in the new year fingers crossed um so a bit about myself i'm an author um i write creative non-fiction and that means that i pull on a toolkit that comes out of journalism but I'm also, I guess, um, working within the genres of nature writing and science communication as well. Um, I grew up in Perth, um, which is a uh, famously the world's most isolated capital city. That's how it likes to promote itself. Um, and what that means is that all of the development in Perth is, is sort of on this very thin bit of arable land that runs down the coastline. It's Noongar Wajak country, Aboriginal country, always was, always will be. Um, and it is sort of sandwiched between the Indian Ocean and a really large bit of plate rock in the Australian interior called the Yilgan Craton. The Yilgan Craton is some of the oldest mineral base that we have on the surface of the earth. It is rock that shares a birthday with the moon. It's very, very ancient. And then on the other side, you have the Indian Ocean, you have this deep sea trench called the Diamantina Trench, which is full of a kind of ooze that's been around since the Jurassic. And so I like to say that I kind of grew up sort of sandwiched between this incredible deep time of the interior and this sort of very hard to imagine deep space in the ocean. This is my first book um, that's out now. I'll show you the, the British cover. It's probably a little shiny on your, your camera there. Um, it's called Fathoms, The World in the Whale. It's a book that pulls on animal studies. Um, it's a book that, as I say, is in the tradition of nature writing. It has two inception points. 
One is that a few years ago, when I was coming home in the morning um, from a job that I was working, my dad rang me and said, there's a whale that's beached um, not far from our family home. And do you want to go down and, and help out with it? Um, my dad oversees the surf lifesaving in, in um, the local beach. So I went down and there was a yearling humpback whale that had stranded there. A yearling is not a, a huge whale. It's about 12 metres long. Um, so it was small enough that a small group of people could move it. And it had sort of stranded on a sandbar, partially in the water, partially up on the sand. So with the help of some wildlife officers, um, we got it back out into the surf and it swam off, but it was only gone a few hours before it returned and it stranded again further up the beach and this time much higher up on the sand. So I went down again uh, with my notebook and with my antenna up thinking that this might be the beginnings of the story. Um, at that point I was writing fiction. So I was interested in the novel. Um, and what had happened while I'd been gone is that a huge crowd had coalesced around the whale. There were people who had brought their dogs down on leashes. There were people who brought their small children down. And there was an atmosphere of macabre carnival in the air because of course how rare it is to encounter such an amazing animal particularly um, along the west australian coastline where the humpbacks tend to stay quite far out on the other side of um, rotnest island which is a barrier um, whereas on the east coast you often see them jumping from the coast so i was standing in the crowd talking to people and uh, trying to learn why people thought that this particular whale had stranded. And I was offered various different explanations. Some people thought that it must have been chased by predators and therefore it was exhausted or it had been injured by a killer whale. Some people thought it might be sick, that it had some kind of parasite or virus. Um, it was noticeably thin for its age. Some people told me that they thought whale beachings were connected to falling stars, which was uh, a beautiful explanation, but they couldn't go further than that to really tell me, you know, was the case that perhaps their navigation was steered off by changes in the cosmic plane or did they confuse night for day when stars started to fall? Anyhow, there were explanations and I suppose they pointed to different kinds of ways of understanding causation in the natural world. And that's really where I started um, thinking through the different kinds of systems that those explanations offered up. But it wasn't until a few years later when there was a news story um, in the Spanish news that I came across that I really started thinking about this project as a nonfiction project. So this is not this is a second whale beaching, not one that I saw or experienced, but one that I read about. It took place. Uh, um, south of Granada, and it was a sperm whale. So humpbacks are the sort of slimmer whales called rorquals. They've got these sort of grooves on the underside of their throat. But a sperm whale is the one that you know from Moby Dick. It's like the archetypal big blocky head. And this whale was dead when it had washed up on the coast of Spain. Biologists who wanted to know how it had died did what's called a neck a necropsy. So human beings have an autopsy, animals have a necropsy. And they found within it this stupendous medley of synthetic objects. 
they found hose pipes, they found bits of mattress, coat hangers, an ice cream pot, and most alarmingly to me, greenhouse. So the tarpaulins, the bits of burlap, the belly of the whale. Um, and the fact that here was this icon of 1980s environmentalism, we think about the sort of Save the Whales campaigns um, that I was dimly aware of as a child. I'm a, I'm a child of the kind of mid-1980s, so I grew up with the faded bumper stickers saying Save the Whales. And there, there we have this sort of triumph of that, um, of that global movement encountering the metaphor we have used to explain climate crisis, because of course the greenhouse is how we articulate um, global warming today. And I thought to myself at that point, like if I was gonna put this in a novel, people would not believe it. It would be too heavy handed as a symbol. And I realized that actually what I was working on was something that had to do with the interface between narrative and the ways that cultural stories prime us for significance in environmental science. Um, and then on the other hand, um, you know, something that was much more attuned to data, to science, to um, anthropogenic change in the oceans. And the intention really was to write a book that spoke to the ways in which the lives of whales reflect the conditions of the sea in the 21st century. In time that expanded and it sort of became much more about the ways that our everyday lives are connected to remote places, to stupendous wildlife that lives out there and what it means to create new forms of compassion at a time when we need to stay engaged with unmet entities, you know, where we need to extend our compassion um, uh, to not just remote wildlife, but also to future generations, to, um, you know, nations that suffer from the early, um, perhaps not even early, the, the sort of first wave of climate impacts, particularly on the equator. Um, and so, yeah, it's a book about kind of going back to the 1980s and thinking about what kinds of activism were possible then, what might be possible now, and the ways that whales wrap us together into an understanding of the worldly. You know, they have this trans-hemispheric debris in their stomachs. They have, um, so bits of plastic pollution that have come from Europe and America and Australia all can land inside the inside of a whale. And they also speak to, you know, issues of animal welfare, issues of um, change in the sonic environment of the sea, the biochemical environment of the sea. So it's an expansive book. It is broken up um, into chapters that are some of them based around scenes. So the writing is not just, um, I suppose, academic and scholarly. It's um, much more about experiential um, uh, re research. Um, and then exposition that kind of goes into the past, that goes into concepts and ideas. I think I've spoken for 15 minutes, which was my intention. Um, I can say more, but I think I, perhaps the best thing to do is invite questions and I can respond to them. Absolutely. So um, thank you so much. And for those of you on the call, if you have a question, um, you just write into the chat um, and say, you know, that you have a question, we'll be happy to call on you. Um, or you can write your whole question into chat and I can ask it 
for you. Um, and to get you started, um, I was wondering how you went about your kind of research process then of this book. So we have this genesis in this particular experience of the whale. Um, but did you go out then and seek particular ex other experiences or did you build on things that just, you know, serendipitously had happened in your life? Yeah, so I took two major research trips for this project. Uh, one was to Japan, um, where I was interested in getting to talk to Japanese whalers. Um, my intention there, though, was not to sort of look at a, you know, set up an opposition between the way that Australians understand the whale um, and the way that uh, the Japanese understand the whale. I, I sort of went there with the intention of looking back at my own culture and trying to understand, um, you know, the sort of fallacies of charisma, because of course we think of whales as, um, you know, charismatic megafauna, um, a particular class of animals that are a pack horse for our imagination. We have um, considered them historically exceptional and um, yeah, worthy of narrative. So I went to Japan, uh, I spent about two and a half months there. Um, and then I went down to the east coast of Eden, uh, sorry, the east coast of New South Wales to a city called Eden, um, which is historically one of Australia's um, most interesting whaling townships. It's a place where um, during the 19th century, people not only processed whales for industrial products, um, most notably their oil and their baleens, which are a sort of bristly substance that whales have in their mouths. But in this part of Australia, people also thought the whale bodies were in some sense therapeutic. And they used to bring the carcasses up onto the coastline and they would hollow out these sort of barrel sized cavities in the carcasses. And if you had rheumatism, if you had, um, you know, some mental maladies, so low mood or depression, you might go down to a medical hotel in Eden and go through a whale cure where you would sit in the body of the whale um, as it was decomposing, which meant that it was very hot. Whales get very, um, after they die, um, the way that their blubber insulates the body, decomposition and the gases build up in the meat, but they're contained by the blubber and it can create this kind of putrefaction that generates heat. Um, so I went to Eden to learn a little bit about that part of history um, and to think more broadly about whales as a kind of cure. Um, yeah, so two big research trips. Um, and then there was one chapter where I kind of look back on the history of whale skeletons in um, museums. Um, and for that, I pulled on some more memoir elements. Um, so I wrote about my own experiences as a child being in a museum. That was very deliberately an intention to, you know, not just place the book in wild spaces, but to look at cultural archives as well. Um, and to speak to the kinds of, um, you know, early uh, passions we gain for animals as children and where they come from and why, um, you know, you might generate an attachment to a whale as opposed to any other species. And then finally, um, yeah, that there, there are other scenes in the book where I'm not so much 
talking to somebody, doing an interview, having an experience, um, but where I'm looking at an art object. So where I'm looking at a photograph or I'm looking at, um, you know, a particular digital artwork um, and you sort of, in, in this category of writing, I would say the one thing that really distinguishes it from academic writing is that you preserve the mental work through on the page. So um, I always think that, you know, a good academic article, you lead with your thesis statement and then you adduce your evidence that kind of supports your argument and perhaps you consider, you know, counter evidence along the way. But in um, creative nonfiction and in nature writing, um, you adopt a consciousness that's very much like watching yourself watching the world. And so you um, take this position that's slightly elevated, but you are working through on the page the ideas um, and you debate yourself and you ventriloquize the reader's impressions. Um, so you're a kind of avatar for what the reader might know or might not know rather than speaking as an expert. Um, so one final thing I'll say about research is that for each chapter in the book, in the course of drafting it, I would have a research memo that sat on the top of the chapter, like a cover page. And in that research memo, it had two main categories, like what do I need to know to write the chapter and what does the reader need to know? So um, I will need to know, if I'm writing about the industrial history of whaling, I'm gonna need to know a lot more, in fact, than what ends up on the page. But the reader who's coming to it for the first time, like maybe they know what blubber is, but they're, they need a reminder. They need someone to sort of just give them a quick definition. And so there's, there's a kind of like process by which you are not um, telling people things, you're sort of acting as though you're reminding them of some fundamental um, facts as you go along. Um, so yes, sorry, I've, I've got away from your question a bit there. No, that's actually a, a great um, discussion because it, it leads to a question that uh, Heidi Hart offered here about your revision process. So when you wrote up your text and you have this memo, I guess, how, how do you go back and, and rewrite things? Do you think about those, oh, well, this is what the reader needed to know and I didn't say it? You know, how does that function? Yeah, so, um, you know, this was a six year project. This took me a long time to do. And I took two six month breaks along that process as well, because I needed to kind of grow some consciousness around my ambitions for the project. And I, I always say to people who are working on book length projects, time off is really important to put it in the bottom drawer and then to revisit it with clean eyes. Um, but the process of revision, you know, when I started out, I didn't have a good structure for the book. I didn't know how the chapter breakdown was going to work. And I had all these pieces. And I remember calling a friend of mine who is an editor and saying, I just don't know, like, what is a part of the floor? Like, what is a part of the seam, the, the, the ceiling? What is a part of the beams in the structure? I've got no idea, like, what's superfluous to need and what's essential and where it all goes. And he said to me a piece of advice, which I carried forward for a long time, which was that the early stage of book writing, you are just making gargoyles. <laughs> he was like, you need to make these perfect little pieces and they should just be as large as you can fit your hand over. 
So don't think about word counts. Don't think about, you know, the big ideas yet. You want to kind of solve narrative problems on the page in the space of a palm of your hand. Um, and then once you've got the pieces, you can begin to kind of bring in a structure. And there's this toggling that goes on between, you know, on the one hand, if you spend, if you exhaustively research the topic before you get started on the writing, you will fall down like so many Google rabbit holes. It's going to take forever before you even, even front up to the page. And so you need to do just enough to kind of get you to the page. Then you do some writing and you discover, oh, actually, I need to go deeper into this topic. I need to interview another source on that. And you go off and you do a little bit more micro research and then you come back. And at a certain point, once you've got all these gargoyles lined up and you, you've done that micro research and some writing, you hit a point, I think, around the 50,000 word mark where you need to actually do a big high altitude grab of it because you, you don't want to cherry pick your evidence to support your argument um, without having sort of a high altitude perspective. Um, so there's this kind of, I suppose, a third of the way along the process where you draw out and you look again at the whole topic and you make sure that you haven't kind of pursued your line of argument, you know, to the point where you've, um, yeah, you've selectively occluded important evidence. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of, uh, it's an altitude thing. Sometimes you're down in the rabbit warren, you know, underground, and you're, you're really focused on the micro data. Um, sometimes you're kind of taking the high altitude perspective. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope that the book preserves that in the writing because, you know, there are sections on this book about, for example, whale lice, tiny little parasites that live on whales that are sort of the size of a five cent coin and their DNA and their genetics and, you know, all these little faceless parasites that live around and in whales. And then on the other hand, there's like big global history of the industry of whaling. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I hope that it manages to kind of keep that scale as an aesthetic preoccupation of the book. I think scale's an interesting uh, comment there. You mentioned how, you know, whales can have these pieces from completely different places that end up inside their bellies, right? So there's an issue of spatial scale that's apparent in a whale. And Sam um, Grissel had a, Grinsel had a question about this, the uh, time aspect of scale here. So could you talk a bit about the idea of whale as a carrier of deep time archives? So yeah. in particular, when did people first become aware that, that they were full of things from the past and how has that shaped their thinking about whales? Yeah. So, I mean, whales are animals that live in vastness and we knew this, you know, from the date of hearing whale song. Um, so the earliest kind of overhearings of whale song um, uh, from whalers in the 20th century um, revealed that uh, the, um, they're animals that speak across ocean basins. You know, they don't only migrate from the poles um, to give birth at the equator and cross huge you know, vast expanses, but they also speak across those expanses. Some whales can live to over 200 years old. They can be bicentenary animals. They have an evolutionary history that runs back 50 million years, far, far further than human or humanoid um, evolutionary history. 
So we kind of, you know, whether it's through paleo science or through geophysical science or biology, we've understood for a long time that whales are animals that I guess have planetary sensitivities to them. But it's only in recent years that we've uncovered the fact that they also bring back to us an archive of human culture and that that archive um, has interesting things to tell us about um, you know, the desires that we've dumped, you know, the things that we've, um, to, to borrow a bit of language from Astrid and Imanis in, in Australia, um, the things that we've jettisoned that speak to um, our former consumer desires. Um, but in some cases, they include objects that, um, or enclose objects that speak to us of bygone human co cultures. So there've been bowhead whales that have been found with scar tissue Bowheads are the ones that can live 200 years old, but they have scar tissues, um, some of them, that have within them arrow points from, um, you know, Arctic cultures prior to encounter with Russian whalers when they bought explosive guns into the Arctic. Um, but they have actual harpoon heads and stone flint, um, stone arrowheads that are of themselves artifacts worthy of museums. Um, so you have like not only what is in the whale's stomach, which tends to be very modern and very impermeable and um, speaks to plastic and what have you, but then you also have um, what's perhaps embedded underneath the whale's skin. And because whales are the largest breathers on the face of the planet, they have literally the world's biggest lungs. They can take the world's biggest breaths. They also contain biochemistry and they contain like biochemical traces of the change that we're wreaking on the atmosphere. Um, so whales are also um, biomagnifiers of um, pollutants that we eject into the air, most notably carcinogens like nickel and cadmium. Um, so they absorb, the, basically what happens is they take a huge breath at the surface and then as they dive, the big rorqual whales the air in their lungs will actually supersaturate their muscles. So rather than being contained in the lungs, and you imagine as you go down into pressure, that's going to put like a lot of force on the body's interior, they push all this oxygen into their muscle tissues and into their blood system. So they supersaturate their blood and muscles with oxygen so they can stay down and feed deep in the depths for a long time. And what that means is that all the chemicals that are in that breath that they've taken, you know, we might breathe them out, we might breathe out a certain proportion of them, but the whale actually it goes into its body and then it gets stored in the blubber in the fat of the whale as well so they they also have like agrochemicals in them um, from pesticides that have washed into the water to the point where they can be much more polluted than the surrounding water because those poisons are lipophilic they bond to fats and whales are very fatty long-living animals i think that's one part of the research that really shocked me and this is, I mean, it's interesting to think about that difference then of bodies of the whale, right? So they, they have a particular um, biology and way of being. And this speaks to Astor's question um, in the chat about the process of using the perceptive capacities of whales as a way into understanding them. So do you talk about those kind of, of differences and how they see or experience the world? compared to how we as humans see and experience it. Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the great gifts that animal studies has given us, that we can 
I guess, begin to understand and be sensitized to environmental change on the planet, not just as it's experienced by our own perceptual apparatus and through our own gestalt, but through the realities and embodiments of other kinds of species. Because imagine it's a kind of unique violence to an animal that lives so um, in such a fine-tuned way in relationship to sound. You know, like a whale um, is not a very visual creature. It's an animal that um, principally locates food and communicates with its social groups and its peers and its family um, using sounds. And when you destroy that, you you um, through noise pollution, you are really doing such a visceral harm to that animal. I think the anecdote that struck me most in this area has to do with a kind of whale called a beaked whale. Beaked whale looks like a porpoise, but it's sort of more barrel shaped and longer. And they live out in the deep sea. It's a category of whale. There's a number of different species within that category. But they're some of the deepest diving whales that we have. They feed um, you know, three kilometers down and they can go down for three hours at a time. And for a long time, scientists haven't really understood what's going on with their skulls because the males have these really unusual skulls and they have this sort of porpoise beak, but then the skull itself is covered with weird crenulations and ridges and bumps and strange patterns that don't seem to reflect any kind of form on the exterior of the head. The head is smooth like a dolphin's head is. And one theory now is that the reason they have these strange forms is that actually the males, um, when they're competing for mates underwater, because of the way they use sound, they can see inside one another's bodies. So rather than just seeing the exterior of the animal, they bounce sound waves like biosonar off one another, and they're capable of discerning the shape of that animal's skeleton. And in the same way that reindeer have these huge horns, you know, not necessarily to fight with, but as a kind of display of dominance and a display of sexual competition, the male beaked whales may have these kind of, you know, sub cutaneous sub skin forms that are operating kind of like antlers so that they can see and compete with one another um, in this, this low light environment. Now, if we bring, you know, seismic testing into that environment, if we bring, you know, really loud um, uh, sonar and industrial development, we kind of affect that animal sensory world. So sound is a big part of this book. Um, the other thing that I talk quite a bit about is vision, um, because it's been my experience that when you read about whales and when you go and you do an, a tourism experience, if you go on an eco tour to see whales, a lot of people feel like uh, they're looking for that eye contact. You know, like I was looking for that eye contact. If I, When I saw a living whale and it drew up alongside this boat that I was on and its, its head came out of the water and you saw this huge like baseball sized eye rotate and seem to behold you it really was like uh, time stood still you know for me um and then i looked into whale vision and discovered that actually you know most whales very very poor color vision very um you know where we have if we have 20 20 vision they have 20 240 vision they mostly see the world as though it were under a black light in a nightclub really bright whites on a really dark background and in this case, you know, the whale that was looking up into the clouds from the, the water would not have perceived me at all. And that seemed like a really interesting vanity to explore, that we actually want to have this one-sided intimacy with whales. Um, 
but you know without the science literacy there to understand how it comprehends its world um we're, we're sort of stuck in our in our fantasy of charisma <laughs> a fantasy of engagement with this animal i think that leads nicely into a question from moritz um to what extent is your book observing whales but to what extent does it allow the whale to co-write the book yeah, I mean, this was an insoluble tension in the book and I don't, you know, it's been pointed out by critics and I, uh, it's my first book, so I feel like it's a productive failure of the book is that on the one hand, I wanted to go deep into the whale's bodily experience of environmental change. You know, I wanted to, in a, in a way, this book is an act of decomposition. It, it picks up all these different body parts. You know, it looks at the lungs, it looks at the blubber, it looks at the baleens, it looks at, um, you know, the, the gestation of whales inside in a pregnancy, whale pregnancy. But at the same time, you have this like inexorable otherness of the whale. We don't understand what it is they're communicating when they communicate, when they sing. That's still an inexorable question. We don't really understand why large pods of whales beach. We have theories, but they're very, very hard to prove. There are some species of whale we know from barely a handful of bone fragments that have washed up on beaches. You know, we've never seen them alive. So we may have a bit of a spine or a bit of a skull. And from that, we can infer little bits about what that whale will look like. But there are whole species that we are yet to discover. In 2016, there was a entirely new species that was uncovered because a DNA test was run on a skeleton that had hung for years in an Alaskan high school as a gym mascot. And they discovered this was a whale that was totally unknown to science and yet it had been the high school's basketball team <laughs> mascot for years. Um, and so, you know, whales are mysterious and mystery is a compelling emotion to draw people into environmental sensitivity with. Um, and I think for myself, you know, that this book um, never really solves the problem of like uh, whale consciousness. It walks right up to the edge, you know, it walks right up to the question of what 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 are whales thinking, you know, and it asks that question, but I, I, it's impossible to access that. And ultimately, you know, this is a book for people. <laughs> it's a book for, um, and most particularly it's for, it's not for a scholarly audience necessarily. It, it has things in it that I think make it a, um, a text that hopefully is worth discussing in these communities. Um, uh, but, it, but it is targeted at um, people who are science curious, um, you know, nature writing readers are, a diverse bunch, but um, yeah, it, it hopes so to capture not just environmentalists, but also people who find whales compelling, which is a far broader church than than just you know those that love that love nature. <laughs> so I wanted to ask a question now um, to get back to some of the themes uh, we talked about initially about the I mean kind of a comparison between nonfiction writing and academic writing. Uh, and, and you mentioned before we started also that you had a, a past in academia, uh, and we also have, I think, a fair amount of, of well, shared acquaintances in environmental humanities, particularly in Australia. So, and, and while you said that you, you work within like the genres of nature writing and also 
science communication, did you draw on any material from environmental humanities in this work? Because a lot of the things that you draw, that you mentioned, I in a way recognize also from, from what's going on in uh, environmental humanities. Mm. Do you the same processes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tom Van Doren's ideas of haunting were really present in this book. I thought a lot about the ways in which encounters with animals now are haunted by our knowledge of um, our effects on the environment. Um, and so I was really interested in the ways he also writes about um, ecologies that have lingering presences, um, co-evolutionary lingering presences. Um, because when I looked at Pacific Islands, what I saw there that was that, um, you know, even though, you know, whalers didn't spend much time on the islands because um, they might temporarily embark there to get rid of some viscera from a whale, or they might, um, you know, go off and get some fresh, fresh water. They chain linked all of these island ecologies together and brought pests from one island to another, like rats, you know, uh, or hogs. Um, and so there's this legacy of like whaling was this um, strangely ecological force in the, in the way that it kind of moved organisms around island to island. And I owe a lot to Tom's work in that space and he's credited in the book as well. Um, yeah, so I, you know, but I also looked at cultural criticism as well. I looked at Sian Nagai's ideas of cute, cutification. Um, I was particularly interested in the ways that that plays out in digital culture, because although this is a book of nature writing, I also wanted to, I suppose, push back a little bit on a modality in nature writing that's very anti-technology and very um, almost aggressively individualistic, you know, the sort of model of the adventuring narrator who goes out to have an experience of sublime nature um, uh, in the wild. And um, so there's a chapter in this book that writes very much from the position of like writing in a community, writing, um, you know, looking at social media in the way that social media has driven us to want to have particular kinds of encounters with nature and share those encounters with others. Um, so I wanted to explore kind of that feeling of we care so much we can't stand it, you know, you care about, you grieve the loss of the natural world and in your attempts to kind of personalise your mourning for that, you sometimes end up smothering nature as a, you know, take all these photos of close-up selfies with animals um, and you're in fact doing some damage to them. Um, yeah, so I've wondered from the question, remind me, <laughs> where were we? Oh yes, research, environmental humanities. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent um, a patch of time in 2018 at the Rachel Carson Center when I was still at the university. Um, I used to teach creative practice, I should say. So I did a PhD that was kind of in environmental philosophy um, in UWA. But I very swiftly after that went into teaching creative writing and that's been my kind of interface with the academy. Um, I've never been the sort of historian or a environmental humanities scholar kind of squarely. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I greatly benefit from that, from that work. Yeah. Well, that's 
Perfect, because Helen Razwadowski, um, your old RCC desk neighbor, uh, wrote in and said that she'd loved reading your book and encourages everyone um, to read it. Um, and so since she knows that you were writing it in some different places, um, including, you know, in inland Munich, Germany, um, she was wondering if you could talk about the experience of writing in different places or under different institutional settings. You know, how, how did that benefit your writing? Uh, the Rachel Carson Center Fellowship, it was just such a such a blessing. It came at it came at exactly the right time. Um, I needed to take a deep dive into this book. I was I was looking for a bridge out of academia as well. Um, I enjoy teaching and I still teach short courses, um, both in kind of scholarly writing and in creative writing. Um, and most particularly for scholars who want to write into the mainstream, because I write mostly now for magazines like The Atlantic and, you know, do some short pieces for journalism, New York Times magazine and what have you. Um, so I am kind of, I do sometimes do some teaching about writing crossover publications. But I'd reached the point where um, in order to work on the deeper projects of my life without kind of getting too grandiose about it, um, it was necessary to kind of step out of the academy and to form a different kind of relationship with scholarship and with my working patterns. Um, so uh, now um, I move around a lot. Uh, my partner is a playwright, so we're in London because he had a show in London. But we kind of spend a few months here. If he's an associate artist at a theatre, we might then be in Asia for a while. Um, we might be in Australia. And I guess the one thing that's become clear this year is that um, that's been a mixed blessing in the sense that I feel like I have adapted my working patterns to, you know, I can, as long as I have the laptop, I'm kind of okay. I don't need a study. I don't need a certain kind of hour. I don't need a certain kind of coffee <laughs> or a certain kind of pen to get started um, because I'm always moving. But um, but now I realize having to be stopped here for nearly a year that a lot of the momentum, a lot of the creative um, impetus comes from that, that momentum. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I don't, don't have a lot of money as a result of that. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's meant that I can work the way I want to work and I can jump if, if there are residencies or if there are stories, most particularly if there are stories that I want to pursue. Um, I don't have to kind of take leave. I don't have to get ethics approval to interview anyone. I can, I can run and jump and do that. So this is how life is for now and it may not stay that way. But um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of where I've gone, yeah. Another um, issue that came up in the chat, Verity uh, made a comment about the museum. So whale in museums and whales as museums, right? In, in terms of them holding these things. Um, so I was wondering about your encounters with whales in museums, um, because this description you had of, of, you know, this town using decomposing whale blubber and being within it. And I mean, just knowing myself, having visited museums that have whale skeletons, how bad they smell after, uh, you know, 50, 75 years of being on display, they still mm. 
viscerally have a very strong <laughs> uh, whale smell. So I was wondering about your your experiences in, in the museum. Yeah, yeah, well, the bones continue to leak oil for, you know, they can go for 100 years, basically. Looks like Vegemite or I don't know if you, it's kind of like Marmite, I suppose, for British people. Um, yeah, so I grew up, Perth Museum, um, where I'm from, was a, it was in this building that was incredibly dull from the exterior. It looked like a traffic licensing centre um, on the edge of Francis Street and the lower levels were kind of stained with bore water. So they were all kind of brown and iridescent. And you'd go inside and the museum was not designed for young people. It wasn't designed as an educational institution. It was a collecting institution. You know, this was where the docents kind of pinned butterflies and did the practice of verifying bird sightings and things. Um, so it was magic to me as a child for that reason. It was not designed for me. Um, and yet it had, you know, these amazingly compelling taxidermies, which no one thought to put any barriers around because as it was, it wasn't a place for children. So, <laughs> so you had this like giant bear at the front of the um, sort of hall of mammals that had been poured at by people as children as they're coming through. It was like threadbare halfway up its thighs. Um, so it was a place that invited imagination. And you went up through the museum's halls, um, through these like staircases filled with gaming trophies, antelope, you know, these antlers, bristling antlers. And you'd eventually arrive at the very, very top. There was a tiny little atrium where we had a blue whale skeleton. We only had one whale skeleton, but it was contained in its own room. And um, you would walk in and you were always too close to really get any kind of perspective on it. You were right up against it from walking and you had to kind of do a lap around the, around the whale. So it was very hard to kind of like draw out and take it all in one sight. And of course it wasn't a taxidermy like the animals downstairs, it was a skeleton, um, the same way dinosaurs were. And I think that invited to me as a child, the kind of question of where to place it in time, you know, like, was it prehistoric or was it alive now? It had also whales um, within their fins, they have structures that are very much like human fingers, very long sort of witchy bones um, uh, that extend from the, the center of the, of the palm, I guess. Um, and, you know, and then it ends in this this spine, but of course the flukes are made from cartilage, so they don't survive. So you just have this kind of tail off of the spine. And to me, it was like Falcor the luck dragon from the never ending story. I just, I, I was an animal of, it was a fantastical animal, as real as a griffin or, you know, it invited the possibility of imagining all this flesh enveloping it and what possibly that animal would look like. Um, uh, so really, I think that's part of the reason that, you know, this is the book that I seized upon for my first book is, is that it occupied this magical place in my, in my childhood. Um, and then, you know, years later, I've been around and I looked at whales in museums in Japan, um, elsewhere in Australia, and of course, you know, um, in the UK, the famous um, Hope, the blue whale skeleton that's now in the London Natural History Museum's forecourt. And I looked into Wales. I've never actually been to America, but I, I looked into Wales and American museums as well and their history. And there are just, they're, they're just, 
because they're centerpieces of collecting institutions, whale skeletons and whale songs, um, there are amazing kind of located histories in, you know, sometimes the violence that's, you know, some, some whales in museums have actively been harpooned to be collected. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed that bit of archival research going back into the sort of individual histories of those museum specimens. And whales importantly are, you know, a category of animal where it's possible to do that. Whereas it would be very hard to do that. I think for bears or dogs, or you have these individual histories in the archives of these huge specimens. Um, so, so there was more to work with there. Great. And um, we have a question and, and, I thank you for that description actually of, of Perth. I was supposed to be in Perth right now. If uh, COVID uh, hadn't, hadn't happened, I would have spent three weeks um, in November. So I'd be finishing up my stay. Um, the, uh, Helen had a, a question about, um, so the book's about whales, but I guess, what would you say about people and oceans more generally? or about people and environment more generally and the ways in which you, I guess, maybe as a writer can use a very specific instance of environments and animal um, to talk about something bigger than. Yeah. Um, thank you. To, I mean, Helen's work is really the, uh, <laughs> the paramount work in this space and everybody should read um, her vast expanses. It, I think it is vast oceans, vast expanses, um, uh, which is a fantastic book. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, at the end of this project, the, the historical point that I wanted to make was that in the 1980s to be anti-whaling meant that you stood against whaling fleets and whaling governments. To be anti or to be for saving the whale now knits you together into systems of worldliness that extend all the way from your domestic spaces, from your kitchen, from the plastic you use in that kitchen, to the cars that you drive, to many different forms of consumption and extend right out into remote environments where we never go. Um, and there's something kind of, I guess the first time you start thinking about that vastness and the way that we are kind of um, intimately attached to the deep sea, um, and to, you know, the Arctic Ocean, the Antarctic Ocean, it can feel very humiliating. It can feel like, you know, exhausting to realize the downstream effects of ordinary life. But there's also a power there. There's a power there that has to do with like, because you affect change all the way out there, actions that you take here close to you, small actions, really incremental actions can likewise be an act of withholding damage, you know, from somewhere as kind of like vast and remote as as the deep sea. Um, and I think that, you know, ultimately the sea, you know, the line in the book is that the sea is not eternal and unchanging as we once thought it was, but we are not unchanging either. Like we can take small steps to, um, yeah, to improve the situation. I sort of hold back from prescribing any particular activist undertaking in this book. It's a book that stands slightly back from its conclusions in that regard. Um, and I think of it really as a, like I hope that the book functions as a place that the reader can gather their nerve 
to take some action. But for each of us, those actions are going to be dialed to the communities that we live in, to the networks that we have, the resources, the privilege, the talents that we have as well. Um, and I think that that meant that I didn't want to sort of trot out a, okay, so you care about the ocean, now you should do X, Y, and Z, you know, now you should be vegetarian, now you should not use plastic and go and sign up for Greenpeace or what have you. That, that's not the way I think either. Um, so yeah, I wanted to allow space for people to gather their nerve and then identify actions that they can take in their own lives. Thank you. So we are running up towards the end of our time, so we should wrap up. Um, I just wanted to ask then at the end, so what is next? Will it be a book about fat squirrels, since that's what you've had a chance to observe the last <laughs> half year, or do you have any other big plans? Like, I, I think, um, do you know this stage in a new project where it's like, it's like Bambi, you know, it's just got up on its little feet and it's like a little fawn in the, in the, in the, in the woodlands and it can barely stand. And, um, you know, if you expose it to too much light, it, it falls over. Um, so I do, I do have a bundle of ideas that I'm working on at the moment, but it, it's like post-its on the wall. It's very, very early on in the thinking. Um, but um, I do want to continue writing about, I suppose, um, yeah, the way, you know, animals in the Anthropocene broadly, but also um, I'm thinking a lot about the ways in which Fathoms was a book about our intimacies with the wild. Um, and now I'm thinking of doing something that's more about, you know, where we bring the wild very close to us, you know, much, much more sort of into our household or into our sort of suburbia. Um, I want to do something that's a little more like not proceeding from wilderness, wilderness, but proceeding from the city. Um, anyway, it's all, it's all like, I don't know. I've got to do some writing before I know if it's a real idea. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. I noticed you did not rule out the fat squirrel. So there's still. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come talk with us. This was fabulous. Uh, and thank you to all of you in the audience also for coming.